0: good morning uh, everyone Uh, and welcome to uh, the 1035 panel Um, this is the Russian oil price cap panel Um, today we have uh, my name is John Bradley I'm a a shareholder uh, in the uh, global transportation finance uh, maritime and international trade practice groups at better price uh, here in New York Um, with us on the panel today uh at uh, the far end is Claire McCleskey. Uh Claire is the assistant director for compliance at the Office of uh, Foreign Assets Control. Uh next to Claire uh is uh, Christos Papenikolai. Uh he is a senior VP at uh, Simpson, Spencer and Young here in the United States and head of their business development group. Uh and sitting next to me is Dan Tadros. Uh Dan is the uh, CEO, Chief Operating Officer. Uh, for Shipowners Claims Bureau, who most of you know, uh, is the manager for the American Club um, here in New York. Uh, before we start, I thought it would be useful, Claire, uh, if um, you could uh, give us an overview of the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Uh, what is its mission? How is it organized? And how it does its business? Could you provide a little background for the group?
1: Sure, happy to. Um, So the Office of Foreign Assets Control, actually, if if you're interested in the history, kind of goes back to World War II and trying to make sure that the Nazis could not get control of the assets of the countries that Germany was conquering. Uh, So it's a very long and storied history. Uh, So OFAC is the sanctions authority of the United States. We're part of the Treasury. We're in terrorism and financial intelligence, which is a (coughs) component of the Treasury that was founded after 9-11. Uh, so we administer the United States economic sanctions programs. So you're familiar, obviously, the embargo on Cuba, the sanctions on Iran, uh, the Kingpin Act, so the drug trafficking sanctions going back to the 90s. Um, so we're fundamentally, um, you know, a national security, security component of the Treasury, and we uh, implement U.S. sanctions.
0: And, Claire, how is the uh, office organized? I see you're in compliance. There's compliance, enforcement. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's organized?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So broadly, we have the targeting component. So these are the folks that are actually, you know, conducting the sanctions investigations and then issuing the listings that you see, you know, the SDN list. Uh, we have licensing, which issues specific licenses uh, for companies or individuals to engage in activity that would otherwise be prohibited by U.S. sanctions. Uh, we have the policy component, which is I was recently in when I interacted with, with many of you. Um, and then we have compliance and enforcement. So I'm the head of OFAC compliance. We oversee the feedback line, the phone line, all the outreach with industry. Uh, when people have questions about OFAC sanctions, compliance is who you come to. Um, and the administration of blocked assets, you know, the, the you know, millions, if not billions of dollars now that are blocked. Um, and then finally, enforcement. So the civil enforcement component of OFAC uh, when there's been an OFAC violation. Great. Thanks.
0: Um, so our topic today um, really begins um, with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia back in February 2022. Um, And as everyone in this room knows, uh, the U.S. government um, has supported uh, Ukraine uh, with military uh, equipment uh, and supplies in the defense of the country. And they have also adopted and implemented uh, through OFAC and through the Bureau of Industry and Security a number of non-kinetic measures in the form of uh financial trade and uh, uh economic sanctions as well as export controls and the story here uh with respect to the russian oil price cap goes back to an executive order that was signed by president biden in april of last year and that that uh executive order um, had a list of prohibitions and one of them was uh the order the executive order prohibited the exportation, re-exportation, sale or supply, directly or indirectly, from the United States or by a United States person, wherever located, of any category of services, as may be determined by the Secretary of the Treasury, in consultation with the Secretary of State, to any person located in the Russian Federation, right? So at the time this uh, this executive order was signed, there had not yet been a determination. But this is the starting point. Claire, then take us from this executive order to where we are today.
1: Sure. So, you know, over the last year we've issued an unprecedented volume of sanctions against Russia. It's 2,500 new and amended listings um, just in the last year. But in terms of the price cap, uh, last summer we got to a point in which the administration realized we had two sort of fundamentally competing goals. One was, of course, to reduce the revenue that Russia was getting from energy. Russia's obviously a very oil-rich country, and its invasion had spiked prices uh, in oil. And at the time, you know, mid-last year, I um, was at Houston for Sarah Week a couple weeks ago, and people were recalling that, you know, last year, people were saying oil was going to hit 150, right, after the invasion, I mean, people just projecting these insane oil prices. And Russia was going to profit from that. You know, it was their war that spiked the price of oil, and it was the spiked price of oil that they were going to use to fund the continuing war. So we obviously had the objective of reducing the revenue that they were going to get from oil. At the same time, the EU had adopted a sanctions package, the six sanctions package, which included a suite of service bans related to the transport of Russian oil to third countries. And the U.S. was very concerned that this was going to take a large volume of oil off the market, which would also lead to increases in prices, particularly in developing countries. So we developed the price cap as a way to try and achieve both of those competing goals, which is reduce Russia's revenue while at the same time keeping oil flowing. I will say people thought we were absolutely nuts. People thought it was a very bad idea, and I can appreciate why. But I think it's worth revisiting that we were operating in the space in which you had the sort of unstoppable force, right, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with the immovable object of the EU's services ban, which was going to come into effect and which we were very concerned was going to spike prices. So that's sort of the background and the policy rationale for how we developed the price gap.
0: So the EU was going to go with an absolute ban?
1: A complete ban on services associated with uh, the shipment of oil from Russia to anywhere in the world because we had, you know, the US had already banned the import of Russian oil. The G7 had committed to banning the import of Russian oil. You know, the EU was banning crude oil on December 5th and then products on February 5th. You know, that was already in effect. But the EU had also committed, um, you know, because of that's where a lot of these top services sit right so there was a really demand you know from the EU of we need to do more on Russia um but with these services banned we were just very concerned that too much oil was going to come off the market
2: Can I jump in? yeah if you don't mind John let me jump in here and I think what Claire brought up just now is really important for people to understand out the gate the EU took the lead in sanctions okay and and for those of you that may have heard me speak about this before you may think it's like a broken record but the EU came out with sanctions that were confusing complicated contradictory on all types of levels and thank God that the United States took the lead when it came to the oil price cap okay because that was a clear directive as to how we are supposed to deal with this at least in the insurance industry so we were very grateful for that and and I think that was a big part of um, uh, there was a concerted effort of the international group, which is the 12 P and I clubs in the world, went to Washington, met with with Claire, with the Departments of State, OFAC, and we were able to explain to them the frustrations that we had because of the European Union's position on certain sanctions.
0: And Christos, um tell us again: this this all involves not imports into the EU or imports into the US. This whole program involves the carriage and transportation of Russian oil and products to other countries such as China and India. What is the state of of the trade right now?
3: It's really interesting to hear both Claire and Daniel on, on their perspectives because, you know, it was very clear what you said as far as your goals to kind of match up with what Europe's doing and everything. But at the same time, it was very confusing for the commercial industry. People weren't sure what to do, when they could do it. And I think we talked about this briefly on a pre-call, where we all of a sudden had de facto sanctioning. People just saying, you know, if it's an oil company saying, if it has a history of Russian trade, they didn't care if it was non-sanctioned or, 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 they, they just said, nope. Traded Russian certain history, so I'm not touching it. At the same time, there was confusion on P&I Club. We talked about this too. Who could cover what? How can you get coverage? Um, These attestations, what do they really look like? Are they true? You know, what is a ship owner supposed to bet? Um, In addition, what we've seen is people like with this de facto sanctioning and with the pipeline system within Europe being shut down, which was primarily all Russian, we've seen it now from a shipping side and the tankers particularly, it has increased the ton miles of European demand. It's been great for the U.S. exports. Um, we've seen longer ton miles coming out of here, so you know John and I were talking about it earlier. you know if there's one and a half ships for every carriage of oil I'd say there now there's about 0.75 ships for every carriage of oil, uh, which has you know increased the tanker market, but at the same time still increased confusion. Um, the other side of it is this price cap is is great, but you also have now I mean today oil touch sixty-four because not nothing to do with anything other than the banking crisis and now we're seeing a price gap of Sixty four. Mm-hmm. so if you look at the way brent and wti sometimes trade at a discount there's no real discount to the russians on their price of oil um, and just today actually i don't know if you guys read about this but russia overtook the saudi arabia for delivery of crude oil to china they're delivering right now 1.94 million barrels per day, um, overtaking Saudi Arabia for you know, the last umpteen years. So it's, it's interesting to see the dynamic of, of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to do, John. Uh, Daniel, sorry, uh, as far as where you're trying to implement. And I got to agree with you wholeheartedly. It is so confusing. Uh, but it's also created like this, this trade and shipping right now that we don't see going away anytime soon. I actually want to ask you one question. Let's pretend tomorrow the war's over and the sanctions are in place. Where do you see sanctions going?
1: I mean, we've always been very clear. You know, the power of U.S. sanctions is that they are reversible. You know, they're designed to change people's behavior. They're not designed to punish, right? And so... You know, in other sanctions programs we tied sanctions relief to a change in behavior. You know, you look at Venezuela, for example, we've been very clear that if the regime, you know, re enters negotiations with the opposition, we can offer sanctions relief. So I think and it honestly, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about if the war ended tomorrow just because unfortunately I don't think it's going to, but you know, if it did then we would be in a whole new world where we would hopefully be able to you know change our sanctions policy but unfortunately
3: wouldn't there be a remunerations exercise and all that first
1: I mean, you know you look at what we're doing on the sort of repo front which is the task force to, to track down oligarch assets you know it's kind of outside of OFAC's purview I think it's sort of a larger G7 conversation but I think there are a lot of conversations happening about ukraine is going to need to rebuild it's going to be extraordinarily costly yeah. and you know where the money is going to, to come from that is, is an open question
0: so what happened after um, after biden signed that executive order um, treasury had to come up with the types of services um, that would be covered by that executive order uh, and uh... treasury identified Uh, trading, uh, commodities brokering, financing, shipping, insurance, reinsurance, what Dan does, uh, flagging, and customs brokering. And within those covered services, um, OFAC then came up with these tiers of actors in their relationship to the actual movement of the oil. On the theory that all of these actors were needed in some manner, shape, or form in order to move the oil. Uh and in the case of the marine insurers, including the PI clubs, uh PI insurance, marine insurance, hull insurance was critical obviously to the to the movement of ships, the financing of ships, the registration of ships. So, Dan, when this first
2: came across for you guys,
0: uh, tell us what your concerns were how how you interacted.
2: Well, actually, um, I'd like to believe that the whole reason why insurers and owners were placed in the lower tier three was because of all the discussions that the international group had with OFAC. Because when we first approached, not just OFAC, when we were talking to OFSI, which is the United Kingdom's uh, equivalent of OFAC, or to DG FISMA, which is the European Union's equivalent, there was a lot of confusion as to all the different players in the shipping mm-hmm. industry. So, for example, um, we had to explain that a shipper did not mean the vessel owner; it could, me- it really meant the supplier of the cargo, um, and that was something that. And again, I'm very grateful to the to OFAC and the U.S. government officials for actually listening to what we were telling them not only as far as the players engaged, but also the difficulties that would arise if a vessel all of a sudden, mid-voyage, was declared uh, to be carrying illegal cargo. What happens to the crew? What happens if there's an international incident, an oil spill? So they again hurt us, and the United States regulations um, include a safe harbor, which allow for – us to provide that emergency type of insurance. So um, in this aspect, as Tier 3, the PI clubs, uh, obligation is to receive attestations, which is a draft document letter type that was prepared by OFAC with contributions from industry. Um, and that attestation comes into us every time a member is to carry Russian fuel. Uh, so
0: Dan, let me stop you there because yeah we're talking about maritime services mm-hmm. and in the case of an insurer the services insure the placement of insurance yep. and the settling of claims the handling of claims correct
2: is there anything else i mean we provide loss prevention directives. we issue circulars updating our members on all facets of, of the law or other areas that might impact them um, so but in terms
0: of the the policy clauses and the attestations that that you require, uh, and that OFAC requires. Um, what does OFAC expect, and what do you provide, uh, or secure from your from your members? Uh, do you get it on an annual basis, on a per shipment basis, on a per voyage?
2: But how do you do that? So I can't say what OFAC expects, and I'm hoping Claire will will give us some <laughs> light, shed some light on that. But as far as we understand um, based here in the United States and we're the only PI club based here in the United States our our obligation is to receive an attestation from our member now that could be in two different forms it can come in one letter with a list of all the vessels that that member believes is gonna are gonna carry Russian oil products or petroleum products or they can send us an attestation per voyage and I believe that both are, have been acceptable based on the frequently asked questions that I've read from, from OFAC. Um, there's a little twist to this for our European-based ba- brethren clubs. Well, under the EU, there has to be a reasonable expectation by the club that the attestation is valid. Well, that adds something to due diligence that a club has to do that the United States does not impose on us. Okay. Before I let Claire talk about this same
0: subject, I want to know, let's say a member conducts ten voyages Mm -hmm. uh, and voyage four, uh, they have carried oil in excess of the price cap, Mm -hmm. but a claim develops on voyage
2: eight where there's no violation. How is that handled? Hmm. As far as the claim is concerned? Well, if the claim arose on Voyage 8 and that was a perfectly legal carriage, there is no issue. If on Voyage 4, the U.S. government or Europe or the United Kingdom declares that that was above the oil cap, then it's somebody's job to enforce that. So either the United States or the European Union or the United Kingdom is going to name that company theoretically an SDN, which would cripple them. Am I right about that? Could be,
1: yeah. We have a lot of options, I think. I mean, I would say on the the sort of expectations front, we've been very clear that, you know, P&I clubs, insurers, are tier three actors and can actually just use a standard sanctions exclusion clause in an existing policy if they want as a way of complying with the price gap. And we've had folks even, you know, share... Price cap specific exclusion clauses with us, um, so there's there's no expectation from OFAC's perspective that an insurer would be getting a per, per voyage attestation. You know, if someone chooses to do that, obviously they can, but we understand. You know, as Daniel said, based on engagement with the private sector, that that's not a sort of realistic expectation from a business perspective. We've been clear that, for example, you know, a bank that's issuing a sort of general financing to someone, they don't need to get a sort of per-purchase documentation because that's just not how, like, a revolving line of credit works. Um, On sort of what happens if, you know, something was carried above the price cap, as Daniel alluded to, the reason we have a general license, which is a public authorization, you know, for something that would otherwise be prohibited for the price cap, is exactly so you don't have a situation in which sort of mid-voyage somebody comes off cover, you know, where's the ship going to dock? You've got the crew. You've got, you know, safety concerns. What if there's an oil spill and it turns out that was above cap oil? This was exactly the sort of nightmare scenario that the clubs were saying is, you know, something could happen. There could be an accident. Now you're telling us we can't pay the claim. So we've been very clear that when you're talking about, you know, emergency environmental concerns, the payment of a claim to really an innocent third party, right, somebody's going to come in and clean up this bill, is not prohibited by the price cap policy. But,
0: but that's that, that's a good point, Claire. And and I wondered about this when I when I read the policy myself because, okay, there are emergency situations involving pollution, uh, collisions, et cetera. But let's say there was a violation uh, and the insurance product is going to inure to the benefit of an innocent party like a like a seafarer is that covered or how would that work
1: it depends on exactly what it is and what we've you know the other thing we've said is in the event that something like this happens please come in to us which we know that they will right because we've been working with them the whole time um, we have specific licensing for this and we've dealt with this in the past in scenarios in which maybe there's a sanctions prohibition but someone needs a specific license. We have said, by the way, you know, health insurance for seafarers, not covered. No no price cap, you know, implication for something like that. Medical insurance, people brought up the issues of what if there's like a medevac scenario and it turns out the crew was on a ship carrying above cap oil. Not at all prohibited by the price cap. But in the event that, let's say, for example, you know, it came out in the press, which I think is honestly the most likely scenario given, I mean, there was reporting in the Financial Times this morning um, about some price cap voyages. You know, if it comes out that something was above the cap and it's not an emergency situation and you're just trying to sort of resolve the issue, just come into OFAC and, and we can deal with that on a specific licensing front.
2: Can I add to that? Just yes, on please. The licensing, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. On the licensing, so because, for example, the American p Club is based here in the United States, we have the ability to go into OFAC and request special licenses that allow us to do and cover certain aspects of trade. Um, so we have various licenses uh, in, in that respect.
3: No, it's okay, it's actually in reference to to you a little bit because right now 25% of Russian oil is carried on, John and I were talking about this word earlier, the dark fleet, the shadow fleet, the gray fleet, whatever you want to call them. At the same time, they're covered by someone. Who, where, how, I don't know, Um, but if Russia's exporting 4.9 million barrels per day, roughly, and that's twenty-five percent is one point two five. At some point, if there's an elision, a collision, something,
2: how does the American PNI Club, how does the A P I Club handle it? Well, we don't. Yeah, I mean, clearly, because so an unintended result of these sanctions, if you will, has been the creation of this ghost fleet, this this illegitimate fleet of primarily older tankers, which are gonna be prone to incidents. Um, that are not insured by Western insurers, okay? There are insurers, that, there's one out of Russia, there's one out of New Zealand, that what I would call rogue insurers, because no one knows, do they have the financial wherewithal to cover a, a major claim? Nobody knows, and, and God forbid something like that happens because there will be no Western insurers that will be able to get involved or that would want to get involved
3: right no no but if it's so one of major. your if it's an american p i club ship and a ghost ship what hap- what what happens then is i guess my question oh, you cover would, your own and and we would
2: cover our own and we would have to go to OFAC and get permission if covering our own meant we have to make payout to whatever, third yeah, parties yeah. that
0: you got see it. when i when i hear these terms shadow fleet ghost fleet dark fleet <laughs> I, I think of evasion, which is a bedrock principle of OFAC. You can't evade sanctions. Is is that an evasion an evasion tactic by going to an insurer in Russia? Or what do you think? This
1: is a this is I think a key point and something that's very unique to the price cap. Unlike some other sanctions programs, I think one of the reasons that you know, industry had such a strong negative reaction when we first described this is the history of Iran, the Iran sanctions, the Venezuela sanctions, you know, sanctions in which it was a full-scale prohibition, do not do business, you know, with this, and also there's a risk of secondary sanctions even on foreign financial institutions. The price cap is an unusual sanctions regime in which we're saying you can do this business as long as it's certain, you know, subject to certain conditions. What we've been very clear on is the price cap is fundamentally a service prohibition. So if someone wants to not touch G7 services, that's, there's no prohibition, right? If somebody wants to use a Chinese, you know, a Chinese company wants to use a Chinese ship and Chinese insurance, that's not what we would call evasion in the price cap context. When when we talk about evasion of the price cap, what we really mean is somebody is lying to a Western insurer, right? Someone has gone to uh, a Greek ship owner and provided false documentation. You know, they've lied on an attestation or they've, you know, signed a, a policy with you all that has a sanctions exclusion clause, but they've, you know, Somehow done something shady, and that is really the evasion that, on the enforcement side we're focused on is people that are deliberately, you know, misleading Western service providers. See,
0: Claire, I'm glad you said this because you know the press is full of these reports about mm. dark ships, shadow ships, ghost ships, and they're not all evasion. I mean, they're they are what they could be what you just described, correct?
1: Right. Yep. It's it's a very amorphous term. Again, I've um, a couple um, people in industry have told me now they're calculating sort of 600 ships in the ghost fleet, shadow fleet. What's hard is sometimes you're talking about ships that do move Iranian and Venezuelan oil. They are engaged in sanctions evasion activity globally, right? That's sort of their business. And then sometimes I think people are conflating just a ship that operates outside of the western system, maybe a Chinese ship or, you know, a, a ship that someone in India has chartered or something like that. Right.
3: Actually, can I ask maybe both of you, because I was asking you offline just briefly, this attestation, you know, from a ship owner's perspective, let's say, who issues it? To the Who club? certifies it? No, who? who well, it depends I'm, on the I'm, circumstances. We're fixing our, yeah, that's what I'm asking. We're fixing a so, ship to you know any oil company and how does the owner protect himself with this documentation that this is, how, do, how does the owner know, who has no relation to the price of oil, he's only there to charge a dollar to for the carriage of oil where is his protection as far as knowing this at the station and where This is
0: the way I would think and, and tell me if I'm wrong this regulator huh. I would think that the way it's supposed to work is you ask the person next in line next to you so the the P&I club asks its member the ship owner asks its charter or shipper am I correct
1: exactly it's a it's a chain And there's no expectation that someone at sort of the end of the chain has gotten something from the beginning of the chain. And, again, quite unusually for OFAC, the reason we use the word safe harbor so many times in our Mm -hmm. guidance is to make very clear to people that we really mean it. So, for example, if you talk about a ship owner and a charter, the expectation would be the ship owner would get from the charter, and I, you know, said who issues it. We we did publish some sort of sample language people can use. You don't have to use that. would get an attestation from the charter that they're not going to use that vessel, you know, to, to transport oil that's been purchased above the price gap. The expectation from OFAC side, we've said, you know, you have to do the due diligence you already do, right? So you, right. Couldn't, you couldn't just, like, stop doing your standard due diligence. But there's not an expectation that you sort of add additional policies and procedures. You just have to get that document. And retain that document, and if it comes out later that that, you know, charterer, they lied to you.
3: That's the key question.
1: There's, and I you, you got the document, then you are entitled to safe harbor. You know, you are not going to face an OFAC enforcement. Okay. And we are, we will go after the person who lied to you.
2: Perfect. And this is where I mentioned it earlier. This is where the EU differs on the price cap. Mm. Under the EU. Even a, a Tier 3 player has to have a reasonable expectation that the attestation is valid, which places a burden, I believe, on, for example, p clubs and owners that, that are based in Europe to, to confirm that maybe that attestation is valid. The problem is um, with the EU, it doesn't really have a track record of enforcement. So what exactly does that phrase mean and how is it going to be enforced? Nobody knows, and that's what the owners are scared of. One thing um,
0: common to both the EU program and our program here is: here you have you have the executive order, you have the determination call, which implements the executive order, uh, and in the EU you have the EU reg, whichever it is, uh, and in the, then they you know a multi multi page set of guidance and FAQs. Here the same thing. Right, we OFAC published t- t- tremendous detail, multiple pages of guidance. The guidance is it law? Is it is it how the it, it's considered law?
1: So not exactly. So I also <laughs> I should preface this by saying I'm the head of compliance, but I'm not a lawyer, uh, more of a banking expert. Um, but you know, OFAC is an, an administrative agency. We publish you know what we call. Uh, the regulations, which, you know, in this case is the executive order, and that is functionally, you know, what has the force of law in this case, so the determinations uh, pursuant to executive order 1404. And then OFAC guidance, you know, is how we give information to the public on how to interpret our regulations and how to comply with them. So FAQs, in this case, the price cap guidance. So just to give kind of an example, I guess, if the, the way that it works with the sort of safe harbor and the use of the attestations, do you have to, by force of law, get an attestation? No, you don't, right? What you have to do by force of law is not violate OFAC sanctions. So if it ever came out that there was a violation, and you did not have the attestation, then you would not be entitled to the sort of safe harbor that we have provided. You wouldn't have really a case to say, well, we did, you know, what you all expected us to. Technically, if you can, you know, somehow make this work without ever collecting any documents and just never violate OFAC sanctions, it's the same way that, like, a bank doesn't have to have an OFAC filter. There's no law that says you have to have a you know a name that check or system that checks the names on the SDN list. It's just that it's very hard to not have that and then not accidentally violate OFAC right. sanctions.
0: No, I mean that's a good point, Claire, because, you know, the, the I mean not just in this instance, but OFAC publishes guidance in many different programs, uh, and you know I always thought the purpose of those was to do exact, although they don't always call them a safe harbor, but to create a safe harbor and a, a possible mitigation or. Uh, you know uh, a mitigation point if there were uh, if there were a civil investigative proceeding, for example that 's right. exactly right
4: um,
0: How do we measure success? Uh, the goals of this program were to make sure um, russia doesn 't profit from the sale of oil and that oil keeps flowing and getting to market. Has anyone measured success so far? How do we do that? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we just hit a little over-the-year mark of Russia's invasion, and I think that was kind of a point at which not just Treasury, but our allies were sort of taking stock of everything. And, and notwithstanding, obviously, that, first of all, all the success so far you know, goes to Ukraine, and they have a very hard road ahead of them. But if you look at this policy, you know, Russia last year made its calculations for its budget based on prices of oil continuing to be high. And so they projected that they would have a budget surplus to continue to fight this war. They do not have that. They have a 47% deficit. And Russian oil revenue, uh, the IEA just announced, uh, I think just last week, that their output has basically stayed the same or is a little bit up. I know they've announced like a minor production cost, but we haven't really seen that yet. And their oil revenue was down 60% from where it was in March 2022. And oil prices are stable. So from our perspective, you know the price cap is working. Russia is earning less
0: money, but the oil is moving. And Claire, I mean, just as a, just sitting in the room as your skeptic, um, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, do we trust numbers, revenue numbers coming out of Russia? I mean, the, you know, uh, their revenues are up. I mean, how do we test those numbers? Do we? Where do we? How do we rely on those numbers?
1: That's a good question, and admittedly slightly outside of my uh, bailiwick. But, you know, this was analysis by the IEA, not by Russia. And I agree that it's very hard to trust, you know, the calculations that the Russians put out. Although I will say uh, multiple high-level Russian officials have admitted that the price cap is hurting their revenue, hurting their ability, you know, to fund uh, the different things they want to do in their economy. And they've sort of... Taken steps to try and get around it, precisely because it is cutting into their revenue.
0: Um, enforcement. Um, we're now three or four months into the program. Um, what are the are there any enforcement trends on the horizon? What, what do you what do you see coming?
1: I mean, we've been, you know, very clear, as I said at the beginning, our, our enforcement is going to focus on people that deliberately violate the policy, people that lie to our service providers, you know, genuinely bad actors. Um, it's still very early um, that, you know, the timeline for OFAC investigations is quite long. I will say we've seen, there's been a lot of sort of churn in the press that we don't necessarily see evidence of. There's been uh, this reporting that like, oh, they're, you know, with high freight rates, the Russians are somehow capturing these high freight rates, and they're, you know, in the middle of it, and people keep, like, saying this to me at conferences without any evidence of it. We just, we don't see that. Uh, We don't see evidence of that, Um, but it's something we're monitoring very closely. You know, we work really closely with our coalition partners to exchange information, you know, and continue to monitor this.
3: Actually, John, can I just follow up on that one second? So, if a. Um, I was reading about this recently where a lot of Russian oil is going to North Africa, more than their domestic requirements mm. require, and they're saying a lot of it's getting stored and then re exported to Europe. I'm assuming, and I have no idea, is that an OFAC violation? Is it okay once it hits a storage, gets blended a little bit with something else? Because I know it's like. It primarily, not to be the same mm-hmm. molecules. It's confusing. Again, I'm sorry, but from commercial side, it just all this stuff is just so confusing.
1: No, it's a good question. Um, so the the rules with the price cap are basically, um, it has to go. If it's crude oil, it has to be taken on shore. You know, and the price cap has to apply through the first landed sale. If somebody takes crude oil on shore and then refines it... No, no. Exports
3: crude. Sorry? They export the crude. If
1: you export crude, if it goes back out on the water, so like let's say somebody brings crude oil into like a tank somewhere, right, and it goes back out on the water without being substantially transformed, it is still subject to the price cap. And, you know, then you get into questions of the European ban. So as far as I'm not a European customs expert, but you couldn't, you know, just take crude... Park it in a tank somewhere, and then bring it into Europe. That would still, you know, violate their import ban.
3: But the owner would not have to get an attestation to load Tunisia to Italy. That's that's the confusing part because he's fixed to you know ABC company. And again, I'm just looking from my perspective and what we're seeing because yeah. there's a lot of these questions and I don't know how insurers come in and all that. But you know this phenomenon we're talking about. Of all of a sudden, you're storing Russian oil sanctioned. Assuming sanction, which is why you're doing it, taking it and then exporting it, well, there's no reason for a ship owner to get an attestation to load Tunisia to Italy.
2: Yeah, but at the end of the day, if you're still there is somebody who knows that that is Russian Agreed. oil sitting in that tank. Agreed. Whether it's a seller, su- supplier, whatever it is. Um, so if that person knows that is Russian oil that has not been altered in any way, then they must pass on that yeah. information down the line. So the ship owner. Even if it's going from Tunisia, let's say to somewhere, somewhere else, else. Yeah. has to be made aware of that. But let's say he's not; he well. gets in trouble. I mean, we'd know, be- he's protected
3: by
0: the okay. safe harbor.
3: So um, we could sit here
0: for four hours and yeah. talk about this. is a <laughs> wonderful <laughs> topic. Um, but this panel's carriage is about to turn into a pumpkin. It's eleven fifteen. Uh, but if anyone has a question that they want to raise publicly, um, Now, uh, to any of our panel members, I'm sure they would be happy to answer. Yes, sir. Go ahead.
1: I think you know, the short answer is it depends. When you say re-enter, you know, if you're, and again, this is the question about what do we mean by dark fleet? Do we mean a, a Chinese-owned, you know, old ship that didn't violate the price cap in the sense that they weren't at any point lying to an, a, you know, a Western service provider? That's. That's kind of up to the Western service providers. If they want to, I mean, I don't know how willing, excited you would be to give a policy to a 20-year-old Afromax, you know. But um, in terms of what we've seen, though, is a lot of the dark fleet is engaged in other sanctions of Asian activity, you know, moving Venezuelan oil, moving Iranian oil, and those sanction programs are very much still in place and we're continuing, you know, to take action
0: in those programs. If I you can know. presume an answer to that question, though, Unless a particular vessel or that vessel owner is actually s- sanctioned, put on a blocked list by um, by OFAC, I mean, there's nothing to prevent that particular owner or that particular vessel to trade anywhere.
3: I can answer also from the commercial side. The oil companies will look at your last 10 cargoes and if, say, to your point, it stops tomorrow and the last 10 cargoes have been sanctioned Russian trade. No one will touch you. So you'll be de facto, again, this goes to that word de facto sanction, where if you can't trade in the open market because you've been trading this business, it better be lucrative enough for you to say, after that, I'm not doing anything.
2: And the same goes for P&I clubs. We have due diligence procedures. Every new potential member that's going to come in or any inquiry has to go through a background check. There's a lot of information that's requested. So chances are, as Christos says, it would be, it would show something that, not be of interest to a P and I club to take on. Anyone else? I'm
4: just giving the easiest way to sell the vessel, make everyone all that money, and then for the new
3: owner of the vessel, they not be required to declare any passing voyages No, you have to. I mean we have ship owners when we sell ships, we get voyage history which goes to the new owner, goes to the P and I clubs. Um uh, Vessel logs, cargo history, all those go in. Now you're going to tell me they're all false. Great. So guess what? You have to discount it for somebody now to take it. Then he's not trading in in the open market. I mean, we we have ship owners in this audience, and they know. They can't sell a ship that doesn't have, they can't show a booklet like this. I says, here's my history. But then they're going back into that sanction trade, so, yeah. So, uh, and then, we'll just to say that people who make all that money uh, by not um, following the rules. Mm-hmm. So we have
4: the chance to buy new buses and trade them into the clear. Yeah. Uh, so, at least, uh, actually, yeah, perfect, perfect here.
3: We have an audit. But you have attestations.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to add something to that because that's an excellent point that you're making.
4: Sure. Right. So, hold on. Even sanctioned
3: trade and non-sanctioned trade is very lucrative.
0: Um, so, there's a. We have to give up this room. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I can see people starting to stand in the back. Um, so, uh, I want to thank Claire and Christos uh, and Dan uh, for their yeah, participation today, uh, and for Nick uh, Nicholas and uh, uh, and the Capital Link people for uh, thinking to put this panel together. I think uh, I really do appreciate. Uh, Each of your participation, and Claire, thanks for coming up for this. Nice to meet you, Claire.
3: Yeah, nice.
2: Good job.